Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, March the 13th. This week's issue is rich in cardiology content ahead of the American College of Cardiology meeting taking place at the end of this month. In a moment, we'll be discussing what cardiologists, primary care physicians and ordinary individuals can do to prevent cardiovascular health problems. Prevention rather than treatment being the watchword. Before that, here are some other highlights from the issue dated March the 14th to the 20th. The long editorial highlights that much more needs to be done to highlight tobacco use as a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Other editorials are on rare diseases and glaucoma prevention. U.S. President Obama's stimulus package for the United States and its implications for healthcare in that country are discussed in a World Report item this week. And in correspondence, we published letters in response to the coverage we gave to the healthcare situation in Gaza, which was the feature of our podcast at the end of January. Now, returning to cardiology, in research, we published the ABSORB trial, which assesses a bioabsorbable everolimus-saluting stent. Another research article is a large meta-analysis assessing the role of percutaneous coronary intervention for non-acute coronary artery disease. Also, we publish a phase 2 drug trial, and this is assessing its value for patients given percutaneous coronary intervention in the non-acute setting. We have a seminar on heart failure and a review on aortic stenosis. But back to the main feature of this week's podcast. There's plenty of literature out there concerning treatment for cardiovascular problems. But what about prevention efforts? Earlier, I spoke to David Wood from the National Heart and Lung Institute at Imperial College London. He is one of the authors of the EuroAspire 3 study published in this week's issue. The EuroAspire surveys have been conducted under the auspices of the European Society of Cardiology, and the object of these surveys is to describe the status of preventive cardiology practice, namely how patients who develop coronary disease are being managed in terms of lifestyle and risk factors and uh, the drugs that they are uh, prescribed, and to show uh, time trends between the first survey, which took place in the mid-90s, to the second in 2000, and the most recent, which is the one that is being reported in The Lancet. Although we're reporting Euro Aspire 3, the overall objectives were, were the same across all three studies. Yes, they were. And what is unique is that uh, we've been able to use um, exactly the same countries and centers and the same methodology for each of the three surveys with comparable methods in terms of blood pressure and uh, lipid measurement so that we can define the changes in uh, over time in lifestyle and risk factors. Can you just comment on the methodology and how you were able to control as well as you c- could get for the data in this study? In each of the countries, we uh, worked in a defined geographic region and in a sample of um, specialized cardiac centers. And in those centers, we retrospectively identified a consecutive series of patients who met the entry criteria for the survey, namely a a medical diagnosis of coronary disease, either because the patient had had coronary artery grafting or um, angioplasty with or without stenting or um, a myocardial infarction. And then they were brought back, uh, invited back to the hospital for an interview and examination, and that was standardized. We used standardized instruments to measure blood pressure in a central laboratory to measure lipids and uh, glucose, and that is why we've been able to describe trends over time. I think it's worth emphasizing, isn't it, that the eligibility for inclusion in the study were people who had already had a cardiac event. So we're talking about a small but important subgroup of the overall population here, aren't we? 
Oh, no, absolutely. We're talking about people who have presented with symptomatic coronary artery disease, by definition at high risk of recurrent disease or um, of premature uh, mortality. And these are the top uh, priority group in terms of um, international and national prevention guidelines. And what were the key findings from Euro Aspire 3? There are some differences here compared with uh, studies 1 and 2, aren't there? Yes, there are some very important and indeed alarming differences. Firstly, the lifestyle trends in these patients are getting worse. And we see that in relation to smoking, where the prevalence of smoking is highest amongst younger patients with coronary disease under 50, and especially amongst uh, women, where it has increased over this 12-year period. We see significant increases in the prevalence of obesity and a corresponding increase in central uh, obesity over this period. And Alongside that, a significant increase in the uh, prevalence of diabetes. So the lifestyle risk factors are really moving in the, in the wrong direction. And the other important observation is that cardiologists and physicians who are looking after these patients are prescribing more and more drugs, um, antiplatelet therapies, beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers. Statins um, as well? Yeah, lipid-lowering drugs, principally statins. Nine out of ten of the prescriptions for lipid-lowering drugs were statins. Despite that uh, more intensive therapy, we are seeing no improvement in the management of blood pressure, which is extraordinary given that more than half of these patients are not achieving the blood pressure targets defined by the guidelines. And when we look at those who are on one or more antihypertensive drugs, we see that about uh, two-thirds are not achieving the therapeutic target. The only success story here is in lipids where the proportion of patients with coronary disease at target has improved significantly over this time period. But even so, that comes with a caveat because about half of these patients are still not at at target. And when we restrict our analysis to those on one or more lipid-lowering drugs, then again, about two-thirds are not being therapeutically controlled. Some striking findings. And before we discuss the implications for, for policy... What about the actual study itself? Presumably, with all studies, there are strengths and weaknesses here. The great strength of this this study is that it has been conducted in the same countries and the same centres using the same methodology over this uh, 12-year period, which allows us to draw some very clear conclusions about trends in lifestyle and risk factors. The study also has a strength in that it's based on a retrospective identification of a consecutive series of patients and then prospective follow-up with interview and examination. So uh, we're able to say with a, with a good response rate, more than 70%, that we're describing here the generality of clinical practice. So we're getting a picture which is likely to be representative. One of the major limitations of the study is that we're just undertaking uh, this survey in one geographic area and in a few uh, specialized cardiac uh, centers. So we can't really claim that these results are representative of the countries as a whole. But what we can say is that given that we're doing these surveys in specialized cardiac centers where you might expect clinical practice to be of a higher standard, if anything, the results in um, other hospitals elsewhere in these countries are likely to be worse. The results and the implications of these results, obviously the data here 
is based on information gathered from the study, thousands of patients across these countries who had already presented with a cardiac event. Are these results generalisable to the more general population who haven't yet got obvious cardiovascular disease? Well, the answer is unfortunately yes, because in our third and most recent survey, and in 12 of the 22 countries where we undertook this work, we also included a sample of general practices. And in those practices, we identified a consecutive series of patients who were defined by their general practitioner to be at high risk. Namely, they'd started them on treatment with antihypertensive medication or lipid-lowering medication, or they'd been diagnosed with diabetes. So they were all on one or more uh, drug treatments. And we brought them back to the practices and interviewed them and examined them in the same way as we did for the coronary patient population. And for every single risk factor, whether it be lifestyle or blood pressure or lipids or control of diabetes, the results were much worse than we saw for the coronary patient population. And the use of cardioprotective drugs was also substantially lower. Here is a a group of people presently asymptomatic who have yet to develop uh, cardiovascular disease but have been found to be at high risk by their general practitioners, but are not being effectively managed according to the standards set in our guidelines. What does this mean for policy? Are there any examples of pockets of good practice where actually some centres or some strategies are are clearly aggressively adopting, if you like, a a prevention approach? Well, if you look at, uh, at Europe as a whole, and based on our Eurospire 3 data, you'll see that less than a third of patients with coronary disease access any form of uh, cardiovascular prevention and rehabilitation program, which is surprising because if you look at the meta-analyses of um, cardiac rehabilitation, you'll see that this form of systematic preventive and rehabilitative care is associated with a significant reduction in all-cause mortality. So we're actually prolonging the lives of these patients. It's not that the patients are reluctant to to participate in such programs. In fact, when asked, more than four out of five will actually agree to and participate in such programs. The problem is that many uh, cardiologists and physicians uh, do not provide uh, such services, and so they're not even offered in the first place. So the big uh, challenge, I think, for the profession and for uh, the policymakers is to invest in prevention, to provide preventive and rehabilitative programs which people with coronary disease can access and use to improve their lifestyle and reduce their risk of recurrent disease and death. And finally, Professor Wood, wouldn't it be fair to say that in some countries, take the United Kingdom for example, the perception seems to be that prevention measures seem to be more of a priority. We hear a lot about anti-smoking campaigns, about eating more healthily, about the importance and benefits of, of regular exercise, that sort of thing. So isn't work already being done in, in this area already? Or is what you're saying, it just needs to be more systematically organised at the uh, cardiac centres? You're right. And I think the United Kingdom, for all sorts of reasons, is a very uh, good example of of how uh, the government and the Department of Health are making investments in cardiovascular medicine as a whole and prevention in particular. But even in our country, we find that actually most patients who develop coronary disease do not access prevention and rehabilitation programs, and such programs tend to lack the resources which go into the acute management of disease. We have excellent services in terms of primary angioplasty and revascularization of the acutely ischemic uh, patient, 
But then the, the question is, how do we address the underlying causes of the disease? And that is where I think we are still falling short. And uh, the provision of preventive cardiology programs should be an absolute priority. And are you hopeful that that's going to happen? Well, I think our data published in, in The Lancet will inform both our own profession, but also, more importantly, policymakers about the extent to which we are failing to meet the needs of patients, in particular, helping them to make important and life-saving changes to their lifestyle, and also to, to manage their other risk factors more effectively according to the best evidence that we have from randomized controlled trials and that means that we need to make an investment in prevention. Professor Wood, thank you very much indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you. Many thanks to David Wood. And Norwegian authors of a linked comment state, political action is needed to reverse the negative trends of obesity and sedentary habits, ranging from fighting against the fast food and sugar industries to safe bicycle paths and healthy school meals. Plenty of food for thought there. Many thanks for listening to this week's podcast. See you next week.